Well, if you were with us last week, uh, you know that we began a new sermon series, a study of the book of James. Uh, James is a, an incredibly uh, practical uh, book, a letter that was written by uh, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, a man who was uh, renowned for his love for God and for, for God's people. Uh, his letter is uh, different than some of the other epistles in that he doesn't seem to track uh, very long on anything. He was following at least one school of rabbi thinking uh, that never stay on anything so long that people might get bored. And so rather drop pearls of wisdom. And so he drops the pearls of wisdom. Sometimes he comes back and drops the same pearl again. Uh, but nevertheless, the whole book is intended to instruct those who are believers in Jesus Christ how to live their lives out in this broken and fallen world. So I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1. This morning, we began to look into the wisdom that James offers us, looking at verses 2 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass... He will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him the word of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you this day for calling us together, for creating a day that we are instructed to rest from our labors and reminded to rest from our striving. That we may rest in the completed work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that you speak to us by your word and spirit, not only reminding us that you are ever present with us, but your word and your spirit guide us in this life, taking us deeper into recognizing our own needs and the abundance of provision that you have given. And with that foundation of grace that is ours in Christ, you speak to us, guiding us, shaping us, directing us in the way that we are to live. So Lord, speak to us now that we may gain the wisdom that you have passed on to all who belong to you. Bless us that we may be a blessing to one another and to you as well. We pray in Christ our Redeemer King. Amen. 
From the mid-1840s through the end of the 1860s, an estimated 350,000, actually some say between 350,000 and 500,000 pioneers embarked on a five-month journey from Missouri to Oregon on the Oregon Trail. The journey was so treacherous that the trail became known as the world's longest graveyard. One in 10 who began that journey died uh, on this passage. On average, it is said that between 10 and 15 deaths per mile occurred, on, for per mile of the trail occurred. Or as another person or another studies have indicated, it says that you, can, you could uh, put people that died 800 yards apart for the whole duration from St. Louis until you reached the trail's end in Oregon. And so we might ask the question, though, you know, the, the whole idea of the Oregon Trail, the migration west has been romanticized in movies, whether it's John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, whoever. But what would possess somebody, knowing those odds, to make that kind of a journey? Again, moving the romantic part of, uh, from us, now let's look at it in practical speaking. You have to go someplace, St. Louis or Oregon, and you are at the airport, and the person at the airport comes over the loudspeaker and says, one in ten of you will die on this flight. Are you getting on that plane? I mean, 90% chance you're going to be fine. Are you getting on that plane? You go to a restaurant, and the chef comes out and says, this is one of my greatest creations. However, one in ten of you will get de deadly, deathly sick as a result of eating this, just because of the stuff that is in there. But 90% of you you're going to enjoy it. This will be wonderful. Or are you going to take the taste or eat the meal? I mean, the odds are astounding that people knowing that the likelihood is that someone, maybe you, maybe someone that you love, is going to die because you go on that trail. Why would anybody take that risk? And the answer was simple. Because everyone who embarked on that trail believed that there was a better life at the end of the trail than the life that they were presently living. The life that would be so much better at the end of the trail that they were willing to take the risk of not making it at all. Now, some of them had been told about the free uh, and the um, rich farmland that, had, uh, that was uh, uh, plentiful in the area that would later become Oregon. Others, no doubt, were probably compelled to go by the possibility of finding gold in nearby northern California. Uh, but for all of them, whatever their specific uh, objective, everyone went because they were seeking a better life. But the problem for them was that the only way that they could get this new life, the only way that they could get there was by traveling this treacherous trail. Now, the reason that I mention that is because James, essentially, in these verses, is saying something very similar. He knows that every one of us longs for a better life. We know that that involves uh, not just circumstances, but most of us understand that involves some form of personal transformation uh, that would make our lives better. And so we cling to the promises of God, not only for a life that might be better here, but a life that is better in eternity. We understand that that's going to involve some change, our conforming to God's word and God's standards and the patterns, doing things his way, thinking his thoughts after him, believing. It's hard enough that we are to do, but we are willing, we long for this because we think that the payday is 
worthwhile on the other side. But what James is telling us in in these words is that the only way for us to experience God's work of transformation needed for us to experience the life that we all long for is by traveling the sometimes treacherous trail of trials and tribulations in this broken and dangerous world. That's what he's beginning with. He's speaking to believers who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, who are experiencing all kinds of different challenges, whether it's with their health or whether it's rejection or whether it's persecution. Most of them were experiencing some form of poverty. James here is speaking about all kinds of different trials and tribulations. And it's important that we look here and he says, when you experience these things, not if you experience this thing. He's speaking to every person. Every one of us experiences these difficulties. He's telling us something that we know to be true, that we wish was not true, but sometimes we convince ourselves maybe maybe it will become untrue even in this life. But deep down we know that suffering is something that we all experience. And the thought of that is rather ominous because the whole point of our longing is to escape the sufferings that we are experiencing in, in this world. And so we wish that James would give us what would seem to be better news. Tell us how to not go through these sufferings, to escape them. Instead, James says, when you do this, when you experience these trials that we're all going to experience, here's how you should do it. And as much as we wish that James would give us a better message, something that would be a little more comforting, it's important that we recognize that what James is giving to us is an incredible gift because he's telling us the truth. This is what we're all going to experience in this life. There is no one who is exempt from it. And becoming a believer, James is pointing out here, at least passively, uh, is not an exemption from trials, difficulties, and hardships. In fact, in some contexts, it only intensifies the difficulties in this life. And we have millions of Christians throughout the world that are experiencing persecution, not just because life is hard, but because they are followers of Jesus Christ. And so nobody is exempt from this. And what James is doing is he's giving us a gift that equips us and enables us to travel this trail and to experience the transformation that God intends, which ultimately delivers us in the land that we want to live in, which is the land with God the land of delight, the land of joy, the land of perfection, and the land of completeness. And so because that's what James is talking about, we ask, okay, what is it that you have to say about this, James? And so he begins with these words. Count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds. Seriously? I mean, you wonder what James was smoking. We're coming to you to say, here's how you can avoid it. Get wisdom, do these things, and then I won't have these kinds of trials. And you're saying to me, the first piece of advice you're giving to me is count it all joy or consider it all joy whenever I am in the midst of these things. It just doesn't make sense. New Testament scholar Craig Blumberg gives us, I think, a good perspective on what James is saying to us, at least a foundation for it. And Blumberg writes this, he said, Considered all joy is an imperative that has been highly abused in interpretation. First, the word all does not mean everything in this context. It doesn't mean that you are to give 
thanks and count and be joyful for everything that you experience. And second, joy speaks of a state of being rather than an emotion. This does not support the idea that a Christian must smile all the time, no matter what they are facing. In other words, even in these words, and James is saying, count it all joy. He's not detaching himself from reality. He's not encouraging anybody else to detach themselves from reality and to embrace some masochistic warped mindset that says, wow, I'm suffering today. Bring it on more. And yet what Blumberg points out is that through time and through history, many people have looked at these words and just said, okay, well, there's the instruction, count it all joy. So I guess I I need to be happy about these things that are going on. And that's not what James is saying. James is not saying that the natural or the spiritual emotional response to experience of suffering is to be happy about it. That would make no sense whatsoever because much of the suffering that we experience is because of injustice that is taking place in this world. A lot of it is because of conflict that we experience even with one another. The suffering that we experience is a reminder that we live in a broken and fallen world. None of these would be reasons for us to celebrate, to rejoice, or to be happy. And, but James's words here are not saying, when he's saying count it all joy or consider it all joy, that we ought to be happy about the specifics that are causing our suffering or the specific circumstances that we find ourselves in. He's not talking about how we feel about it. He's saying that we are to count it, consider it. He's, that it's not an emotional, but it's an attitudinal adjustment that we have. The difference is not whether we suffer or not, but how we suffer, how we view our sufferings, and therefore how we experience our sufferings. And so therefore, he's not saying this superficial as Christians for the sake of witness, paste a smile on your face and everybody want to be like you. At times, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn, which means that we then suffer even sufferings that are not our, not our own. And then we experience those things even in only difficulties and hardships and trials, other things beyond that tax us and stretch us beyond our, our abilities. You see, the Greek word that is used here for count as it's expressed in the ESV or consider as it's used in NIV and, and some other translations uh, means to be of the mindset or to be of the opinion. And so what James, when he's saying this, he's saying, be of this mindset when you experience the trials that are inevitable to come into your life. Make sure that this is of your opinion. That you can have joy, not because of the circumstances, not because of the specific sufferings that you are in, but because God has told his people that he will use the sufferings that we experience in this life as a powerful tool to shape and to transform us and to make us into the people that he has designed and intends us to be. And that's an entirely different perspective than, okay, we need to put on a happy face because we want people who don't know Jesus to believe that therefore as Christians we're happy about everything so that they sign up and join and perhaps even buy into the lie that so often is used and passes for evangelism has come to Jesus and all of your problems will go away. 
Nowhere does the scripture indicate that. Read the Psalms. These people were in anguish a lot of the time because of the sufferings of this world, sometimes as a consequence of their own foolishness and sinfulness, other times because of just living in the brokenness that we see all around us. To count it all joy is not to pretend that all things are good, but to recognize that God is good and he uses even the ugliest and most devastating things that we may go through in this life to shape us, to transform us, to become more like Christ. See, the passage tells us not just that we should count it all joy, but the passage tells us also that God uses our sufferings. That's what he says here. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and Then he goes on, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And so what James is saying is there is a purpose in the suffering, which is why God allows it. The one who has taken beauty and uh, made beauty out of ashes takes the experiences that we all have in this life and then uses them to shape us that out of our lives would become beauty and a fragrant offering to him. Suffering itself is never an indication of God's disfavor, or not necessarily an indication of God's disfavor. And and that's a mindset that James gives to us here when he says, look, there's a purpose. God is using the suffering that we are experiencing. Suffering is common to everyone. And what James is saying is that it's not whether we suffer, but how we view our sufferings that makes the difference, that we are to be aware that God is at work, even in the midst of our circumstance. Therefore, anything that we're experiencing isn't purposeless. And therefore, it is not hopeless, even if we can't see the answer, even if it seems to be undoing us or destroys a part of our life that we treasure. God is still at work within us through these experiences, these trials, these tribulations, these sufferings. John Newton understood this. Now, most people know John Newton as the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Many others know that Newton had a a powerful transformation in his own life. Having been a ship's captain, was a ship's captain of a a slave trading vessel. Then coming under a powerful conviction of the Holy Spirit, not only repented of that trade, but left it entirely and became a minister of great influence in 18th century England. He went from being a slave trader to being a significant influence on the abolition of slavery in Great Britain because he was the pastor of William Wilberforce, the man that God rose up to at least from a political standpoint, bring that transformation uh, in, in, in the British Empire. But Newton was not only known because he wrote a hymn that is well-loved, Newton was known for his wisdom that was expressed through a number of letters, his books that are out there, the letters of Newton that he wrote to individuals or to politicians or people of influence, uh, just that many of whom wrote to him asking for his insights as to what would be the godly thing to do and just powerful, practical advice that is worth uh, delving into. And Newton is in a way of expressing his own heart was a prolific poet, 
And so there are scores and scores of poems that Newton wrote, many of which have also become hymns, maybe not as well known as Amazing Grace, but I think equally as powerful. One that speaks to me and I go back to frequently is one that has been titled later on, I Ask the Lord. And it's become not only a, a, a popular poem, but it's become a, a very uh, profound hymn as well. And so let me read this for you and I'll offer commentary in between because it's what James is speaking. Newton writes this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I mean, what better prayer is there? It's the prayer of sanctification. I wanna grow in your grace. I wanna know you better. I wanna see you. I wanna experience. This is the prayer that Newton said that he was offering up. He goes on, he says, "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer." In other words, I pray this because I believe that's what the scripture teaches us. That's the pattern of the Psalms. That's what God wants. God wants us to know him, to experience his present, to grow in his grace, to be transformed in that way. And so Newton says, this is what I pray, and this is why I pray. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair." I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. In other words, I pray this prayer, Lord, I want to know you. I want to see your face. I want to be transformed by your grace. And so just thought, boom, God is going to just do that. And just, I go to bed one night, I wake up the next morning and I'm changed. I am better. But that wasn't Newton's experience. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Suffering because of the experiences of living life in this world, suffering because of recognizing his own weaknesses and failings and sin. And he's feeling the weight of all of them. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed and blasted my gourds and laid me low. In other words, he had thought, here's my plan. I'm going to spend this much time in studying the word, this much time in prayer, engage in mission. I'm going to do good things. These things will stretch me. They'll challenge me. I've, you know, I've got it all planned out, how I'm going to grow. And the Lord just blasted them all away. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? The Lord's answer was this. Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break your, thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find thy all in me. See, what Newton was expressing was something that all of us, certainly most of us, experienced. Maybe we didn't know that it was normal. But Newton was saying that the trials that he's experiencing, both from the outside that were pressures upon him and the, uh, the weaknesses and the frailties and the pain that was on the inside, all of the things that were sources of his suffering, but he was saying that these are some of the most powerful tools 
recognizing these things, experiencing these things, becomes some of the greatest opportunities to experience the God, uh, God's transforming grace. So God uses our suffering to bring the transformation that we need and that he intends and that he's promised. He uses the sufferings to produce something in us and to make us into something. And so the question is, what is it that God produces? And we see that here in verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, fortitude. And let this steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And there's what God is, is producing in those who belong to him through those who experience the trials, Understanding that God is at work. Perfection. In some translations, maturity. That's perfect in maturity. Complete. The job is done. He who began a good work in you has seen it through to the end. This is the process and this is what he's doing. And lacking in nothing. Aren't those the characteristics that we're all longing for in the life that we want, that that we're willing to sacrifice, even risk, uh, uh, great risk in order to experience? We want to know that we are lacking nothing, that we are now complete, and that we are perfect, at least in, in our maturity. That's what we all long for. And James is saying that God is faithful in doing that. And the fact that you're experiencing suffering is not an indication that you're on the wrong path. It may be an indication that you're living life and that you're on the right path. Because God will use these sufferings to bring transformation into our lives. Now, it's important that we understand this because one of the things that is said and sometimes embraced in the church is whatever doesn't kill you will make you stronger. That's not necessarily true. It certainly is not a biblical concept. Many things that don't kill us can leave us crippled and bruised and weak and feeling lesser than we are. Simply experiencing suffering itself doesn't make us what we're supposed to be. It's never the suffering, but how we deal with our suffering, how we face the suffering that shapes the experience that is a result of the suffering in our lives. And so what James is pointing us to is to remind us that God is using these sufferings, but we must be like those who have this understanding, have this mindset, know that whatever it is that you're going through, whether it's through a consequence of your own actions or just living life, it's not outside of God's use to make you who you are to be. This is the promised result. Some may wonder, well, how does it happen? You know, the engineers in here. It's not enough to know what the result. I need to know how it works. How's the mechanics of this? And fortunately, James tells us this. In verse 3, he talks about the, the trials, the testing of our faith. Or let me read it specifically. You know that the testing of your faith produces the steadfastness, which, and then the steadfastness continuing in that, produces the perfection, the maturity, the completeness, and ultimately says that we'll be lacking nothing. And the imagery James is is using is something that is fairly common uh, that we know. Uh, There's, it's a stress test. 
Some of you have gone to the doctor and they put you on the treadmill. Others, perhaps not on the treadmill, they give you some pill that stresses your heart, that makes it race in order that the doctors can evaluate whether the heart is functioning the way it's supposed to. to. It, is a, it is a test in order to expose something. We see the same kind of thing in, in structures. People that are uh, trained to look at bridges and they put a stress test on the bridge to see whether it's going to stand up for another year or another day. Uh, as traffic travels across the bridges, they, they put the stress on these things in order to test it, to expose what needs to be addressed. James may have had something more in mind here because it's also the same kind of imagery that is used for the smelting process, whether gold or, or some kind of metal. If you go down to CW and, and you go and you can see the, uh, the artisans and, uh, that, are, that are at work and the, the fire that uh, refines the, the metals and you've got things that are drop off, the dross, the things that are not pure, until ultimately what you have left is, is the pure metal or, or the pure gold. It is through this testing of our faith that that which is not right and good and pure drops off and that which is supposed to be in our lives, that which is pure, uh, gets fortified, gets strengthened and becomes more pure. This happens through the process of trials and, dif and difficulties that we have in this life. But at the same time as we're being refined and purified because of the testings. We're told that the trials and sufferings produce certain qualities. Not only the ultimate goal, but we, we see God being at work, among them humility. The person who has never suffered is never able to truly be humble. Compassion, the person who has never suffered has no idea of how to engage with people in the midst of their suffering. It doesn't mean that they won't be kind and they won't be considerate and they might not be helpful, but they would have no way of compassion, of understanding, empathy, feeling what the other people are feeling. That's why those of you who have experienced different kinds of sufferings are able to minister to other people. Those of you who have had cancer and are cancer survivors, you are incredible uh, encouragement to other people, either who have cancer or whose family members have cancer, because you understand and you can share your own experience. Those of you who have come through traumatic childhoods and have flourished in adult life, you're able to speak not only with children, but other people who are still processing these things. Whatever trial that you have been through, that the Lord has brought you through, you were able to share your experience, whether you have mastered it or whether you're still in process, but you are able to feel what other people, as they're experiencing the same kinds of trials, because the Lord has used those things to bring compassion. That's part of the way that God shapes us in order that we not only minister to one another, but that we can minister to a broken and hopeless world because they're all experiencing the same kinds of things that we are, and yet without hope. And it's through our sufferings that God brings the level of humility and saying, you know what, I'm not exempt. I must not be special above everybody else. And it brings compassion that we can experience uh, this uh, things. And, and, and even wisdom, because James alludes to that. If you lack wisdom, pray. Pray for wisdom. And, and so these characteristics are cultivated over time as we experience either prolonged suffering in one way or multiple sufferings and all of us are going to experience them. It is the process of, of the testing and the building that makes us something. It's, it's kind of like suffering. It becomes in the life of the one who has this mindset that God is at work, even in the midst of our suffering, like the chrysalis for a butterfly that has to struggle in order to be able to fly. If you were to cut the chrysalis open because you see that it's beginning to come out, 
the chrysalis, the, the butterfly, you're not doing anything, it will fall and be unable to fly. It's through the struggle to get out of the cocoon that allows the butterfly the strength to be able to fly. It's, it's kind of like the, how the oyster is irritated by sand, but through dealing with that irritation it produces the pearl, or how the pressure on the coal produces the diamond, the sufferings, the trials, the difficulties in this life. God shapes us and makes something beautiful out of our lives. So the question is, how should we face the suffering? And I think James gives us several pieces of practical advice. The first, I think, is that we need to remind ourselves of the purpose of our lives. Now, there's nothing specifically stated there, but that's a foundational understanding because we have to understand that we exist for a particular purpose. Otherwise, we're not going to have the mindset. We're not going to be willing to embrace this mindset. We need to understand that God created us for a purpose, which is to have fellowship with us, but that we, having fellowship with him, would honor him, love him, and glorify him. Or as our catechism puts it, our primary purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him now and forever. That is our primary purpose in life. And if we don't have that mindset, if we are not aligned to our primary purpose in life is that we exist to glorify and enjoy God. God doesn't exist in order to give us the most comfortable life we can. If we don't have that mindset that this is our purpose, well, then when suffering comes, we're not going to embrace what God may be doing. We're going to find every way we can to escape it. And then we're going to be angry with God because he's not doing his job, at least in our estimation, which is to deliver us from the suffering. God is at work in the midst of our suffering. And so we need to be first and foremost reminded of our primary purpose in life. We need to be reminding ourselves of that regularly. That we have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed by Christ. And we are no longer our own, but we belong to him. And our purpose in life is his glory. And he will do in us what he sees fit to make us who we are, to make us useful that he will receive glory and we find our most joy when we are willing to be aligned with that truth that God is at work within us, but he's shaping us and making us into something. So remind yourself of your primary purpose, which lays the foundation for you being able to have this mindset. Second, we need to admit our helplessness and to seek wisdom. In other words, the fact that we have these trials is an indication that we can't control the life around us. Because if we could, we would do away with the sufferings. We don't suffer until we realize it is beyond our control. There's nothing that we can do about it. And that we are helpless in our own strength, with our own schemes, with whatever our designs may be. And so... It's an invitation for us when we come to that is that we recognize that we are helpless and we are in need of someone greater than ourselves to rescue us, to deliver us. Which drives us to the cross of Jesus Christ where we see the love of God is demonstrated for the purpose of delivering us, which gives us the ability to have the mindset to recognize that God is at work in accordance with his promise. 
And part of that is the wisdom. And, and, and James specifically deals with that here because he, he says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, which is, we don't know. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. That's part of acknowledging our finiteness and our dependence upon the grace of God who is all powerful and who is all good. And James's response to that is, first of all, knowing that we belong to God and he's free to do as he sees fit to make us into what he created us to be and that we can't control things anyway. James says the response is pray. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. That's the communication with God. Talk to God who gives abundantly. He will grant us understanding. But in order for that to make any sense is we got to go back to the very beginning and realize God is going to do what God needs to do. God is in charge. God has the right and has the ability to do whatever he believes is right. And that's the hope that we have. Because too often we try to make sense of what God is saying, but fit it into the box of our preconceived ideas. And as long as we are trying to make God's wisdom fit into our preconceived ideas, we're going to lack wisdom because we're lacking understanding in the first place, but what God says doesn't make sense. But James says, look, if you're lacking this wisdom, if you just don't know, pray, talk to God, and he will give wisdom but it'll probably come through the process of suffering, coming to the end of ourselves, recognizing that we are helpless and that we are not our own and that we belong to God. But if we belong to God, he is at work within us and we begin to see how he's at work within us and how he is using us. And so therefore we start having the joy and the life that we want. These are the mechanics again of what James is talking about here. And then as part of that wisdom, James says that the fourth thing is this, is that we need to remember who we are. We see that in verses 9 and 10 in particular. He says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. In other words, we don't all have the same experiences in this life. It's not outside of God's control. And the one who seems to be winning in this world is not necessarily the one who God has the most affection for. In fact, over and over and over again, we see how God identifies with and God loves those who are poor. And so he's saying, look, if you have been uh, dealt a, a hand that seems to not be uh, the winning hand in, in this life, it doesn't mean that you are being rejected by God, but actually boast in your exaltation because the least will be greatest in the kingdom of God. And God is using those who don't depend upon their own strength and resources and abilities, but realize I am poor in spirit and I have nothing other than what God is doing in me and has given me. On the other hand, there are many, and all of us in one sense qualify, some more than others, as those who are rich. Well, then we are to uh, uh, be exulting in humiliation in other words, realizing that we are just so tempted to trust in ourselves. And yet there is nothing special about us. And he goes on and says, look, rich or poor, the same end comes to all of us. Every one of us is going to fade like the flower and come to the end. But what James is saying to us is, look, evaluate where you are, be aware of where you are, and then recognize that it's God who is at work and he will work in you and he, through you and he will refine you and he will purify you. Because this is the promise of God. Let me finish with this. 
C.S. Lewis uses a, a wonderful illustration about what God is doing in our lives. And I think it's particularly pertinent to this situation of considering who we are in light of the fact that we all experiencing sufferings, we all long for this other world, other other life, and to be uh, for life to be better than it is. But the question is whether what you want for your life, what I want for my life, is actually as great as what God wants for us and has promised to do in us. So listen to what Lewis says. Imagine yourselves as, li- as, as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth has God up to? The expectation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace, and he intends to come and live it in it himself. See, we all long for this greater life, but the vision that we have for this greater life is so much less than what God has intended for his people. And we're willing to settle and to satisfy, uh, be satisfied so easily. But God has great designs, greater than you can imagine. And he is in work within you and me and all who believe. And he has said that he will see that work through until he is finished with it. And when he is finished with it, you will experience the fullness, the completeness, the perfection that in one sense we long for, but seems too hard to get. Because God loves you better than you love yourself. And he uses our sufferings and trials and difficulties in this life to make us into what he has designed us to be. So have this mindset among yourselves. Recognize that blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial, for when he or she has stood the test, he or she will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Lord, I do pray particularly for those who are in the midst of various kinds of sufferings and trials right now. Zaren has already prayed for many who are experiencing the, the physical health issues and for those who are closest to them and love them. Many are experiencing anguish, emotional, financial, job-related, whatever, uh, the sufferings. Some suffer in silence, just feeling nobody cares or certainly nobody understands. I pray that by these words that we've read of James, we would be reminded in our own sufferings that you do care and you are aware and that we would recognize that you are at work within us because of your love and because of your promise. So Lord, I pray, but I pray with great trepidation, be at work within us, but be merciful, O Lord. Shape us, but give us understanding until all of us reach perfection, maturity in Christ. This we pray with great confidence in accordance with your promise. For we pray it in Christ Jesus, the living stone.
Amen.